All right, if you have a Bible with you, or a Bible app, you can turn to the book of Isaiah, in chapter 9. You can Google it on your phone, whatever you'd like to do. Isaiah, chapter 9, it's about the middle of the Bible, and then head right a little bit. We are in a little Christmas series we're calling Christmas According to Isaiah. We are looking at Christmas through the eyes of a guy who lived seven centuries earlier, prior to the first Christmas. Take that in. This prophet lived over 700 years before Jesus Christ was born, and yet God helped him see the one who was to come that we are celebrating. Let's see what Isaiah saw as God showed him. In Isaiah 9, I'll begin reading in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the, of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. You have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, we burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. But kids, I want to I want to connect with you for a moment. Kids, Christmas is coming, as Joshua mentioned. Are you excited, kids? Any yes. kids excited out there? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Why are you excited? Yes. Yes. Jesus' birthday. That's the right answer. That's right. Anybody excited for presents? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And whose birth? Tell me again. Are we celebrating? All right, Jesus' birth. I want you to listen, kids, for why you should be excited about that, as well as presents, all right? Why you should be excited about Jesus Christ being born. We sang earlier these words. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight, the one born at Christmas. Do you agree with that? The hopes and fears 
of all the years, including the year 2020, are met in him, your hopes located in him, your fears resolved in him. A famous Christmas poem is entitled, The Bleak Midwinter. I think bleak's a good word for the year into which Christmas arrives in 2020. Lockdowns and quarantines, family gatherings postponed, intensive care units filling up. 300,000 people have died in the U.S. so far and many more around the world. It's a pretty bleak situation this Christmas. And not only that, you probably have some aspect of your life right now that feels kind of bleak. If you don't, just wait for it. It's coming. Trials, challenges, difficulties. Look, suffering. It's coming. Things can get pretty bleak in our job, with our finances, our schooling, our health, our relationships. You fill in the blank. Here's my question. What's going what's gonna to arm you? What's going to prepare you? What's going to help you and equip you for the bleakness? in this world and sometimes in our own lives? The answer Isaiah gives us this Christmas is hope. Hope. One writer called this passage the triumph of hope over experience. That's what I want to see with you this morning. The triumph of hope over experience. The triumph of hope over any bleakness you're going through right now. The triumph of hope, even over all the bleakness in this world. The triumph of hope that we see right here in two parts. Let's take it in two parts. The first I'll call the, the triumph of hope's reversal. The triumph of hope's reversal. Here it's the 8th century BC, and King Ahaz of Judah, the little nation of Judah, has decided to trust his ultimate enemy, the powerful Assyrians, instead of trusting his ultimate friend, the living God. And in chapter 8, Isaiah sees the inevitable result. The Assyrians will invade, and they did so in 733 BC. Chapter 8, verse 22, sums up the bleak situation to come. Verse 22 in chapter 8, it says, They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And that's beyond bleak, isn't it? That's hopelessness, distress, and darkness. The gloom, the gloom of anguish, a thick darkness. Ever been in a situation like that yourself? Where everything seems dark, there's no light at the end of that tunnel that you can see. Maybe you're there right now. Look, whatever situation you came here with today, God can meet you right there with his hope this Christmas. Look with me then again at chapter 9. It begins, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Chapter 8 ends with gloom. Chapter 9 begins, No gloom! Continues, in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. 
Those were the northern tribes, the northern areas, the area where the Assyrians would first invade, the areas where they would feel the brunt of the Assyrian army. The first, the first group to do so. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Notice, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them it says, light has shown that the deep darkness has been dispelled by some great light. And Isaiah describes this in past tense because it's so sure, it's so certain that it's going to happen. In Isaiah's mind, hey, it's a done deal. It's in the bag. Game over. It's that certain, he says. With the effect, notice in verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. And then he gives two, two word pictures to help us Think about that joy. Continues. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest. In a society like this, the, the crops you grew, that's what you lived on. That's what you survived on. Harvest time ensured your survival. Harvest time is party time. Harvest time is joy. It's feasting. It's celebration. That's the joy of this reversal. The other picture is of the joy of a victory after battle. It continues. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. Think about it. These people are going to be defeated by the Assyrians. Ravaged by the Assyrians. And yet one day it says they're going to enjoy the spoils of victory. The defeated will have the joy of victory. So the nature of this hope is as of a reversal here. Gloom to no gloom. Darkness to light. Defeat to victory. It is like the reversal that you often find in the writings of J.R.R. Tolkien. I know I've shared this before, but, but bear with me. Tolkien had a, a word he coined for this. He called it eucatastrophe. This means good catastrophe. A good catastrophe is a, a joyful outcome out of what looked like certain defeat. So think about the last installment of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the return of the king. Think about how that ended. Frodo, in the end, is, is overcome by the power of the ring. Do you remember that? He decides to keep the ring for himself instead of destroying it there at Mount Doom. Oh no, all is lost. And then Gollum shows up, and he tackles Frodo, and he bites off Frodo's finger. He takes the ring. Oh, no, all is lost again. And then I think, if I recall correctly, Frodo kind of pushes Gollum. Gollum stumbles, falls into the fires of Mount Doom, and the ring is destroyed. All is saved. That's a good catastrophe. That's what God says happens for his people in Isaiah chapter 9. That kind of reversal. Gloom to no gloom. Darkness to light. And so we have great joy. Now, how is this possible? Well, the New Testament writer, Matthew, 
were the original 12 disciples, Matthew tells us exactly how this happens. Matthew chapter 4 reads, And leaving Nazareth, he, Jesus, went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, listen, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, and he quotes these verses. You catch that? Zebulun and Naphtali, the places that would first feel the brunt of the Assyrian army, that's where Jesus Christ begins his ministry. He is the great light that dispels the darkness in Isaiah chapter 9. Jesus is the one who brings this great reversal. So you should ask, Tab, how can we then experience this, this triumph of joy in our own lives? When, it, when it's all bleak around us or bleak in our own lives, how can we experience the triumph of this joy over, or hope rather, over our experience? Well, I think a scholar and commentator named Alec, Alec Matir provides the answer. He says, as always, as always, the people of God must decide what reading of their experiences they will live by. As always, he says, the people of God must decide, must decide something, must decide what reading of their experiences, what reading of their experiences they're going to live by. That was true for these first readers of Isaiah, and it's true for us, isn't it? What, what reading of your experience are you going to live by? See, one reading, one reading says all is bleak and always will be bleak. One reading says all of life is hopeless. One reading says all is lost. Nothing will ever change. Now listen, I'm not trying to minimize what you're going through. I'm really not. I'm not trying to make light of anything you're enduring. But is that your reading of your experience right now? The other reading says a great reversal is one day coming. The other reading says a good catastrophe is going to result. A joyful ending that's promised in Christ. That's your Christmas hope. A joyful ending you can enter into today. So then you might ask me, Tab, look, I'm in the gloom now. How can that make a difference for me now? Some future reversal, some future hope. How does that help me now in the midst of the gloom? Answer, it can sustain you. This hope can keep you going. It's a sure, certain hope that that enables you to say it's worth it in the end, and you keep going. That the prize is worth the struggle. That the finish line is worth the race. So you keep enduring because of the good catastrophe to come. And how do we do that? I read this past week about 
a famous speech by a basketball coach named Jim Valvano. You might know him as Jimmy V. He led North Carolina State to the national title years ago. He was a beloved coach. He developed an aggressive form of cancer. Two months before he died, he, he gave an inspirational speech that's become rather well known. He told people to every day, you should laugh, you should think, and you should cry. He said, every day, laugh and think and, and stir up your emotions. And then he said, never give up. Never give up. Don't ever give up. Now, now Valvano had this kind of naturally optimistic personality that enables him to do that, I think, naturally. Not give up. I don't have that personality. I don't know if you can relate to this. I think left to myself, I focus on the dark cloud, not the silver lining. I need, I need facts to convince me that I should not give up. I need reasons I can take to the bank. And that's what we find next in this passage. Secondly, see with me the triumph of hope's reasons reasons for this triumph of hope. We're given three reasons, actually. Verses 4, 5, and 6 all begin with the word for. Look at verse 4. It says, for. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. What's that talking about? Talking about a couple things. It's first referring to the exodus of Israel from slavery in Egypt. See the yoke of his burden, the, the rod of his oppressor. It's a picture of enslavement, of being hopelessly oppressed. But God intervened. God delivered them. That's what God does through this Christmas hope. Freedom from slavery, deliverance from oppression. Are you feeling stuck right now in your own life? You're feeling stuck? Maybe you're in some form of addiction or some behavior, and you want to stop, but you don't know how, you can't, left to yourself. You know, all of us are there at some point in our lives. We're actually born that way. We're born slaves of sin. We're born captive to something within us that keeps us away from God. We can't free ourselves, and yet we sang, Oh come, oh come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel. That's what Jesus does. He ransoms us. He frees us. He purchases us to release us from our own captivity. How? Well, verse 4 says, as on the day of Midian. On the day of Midian. That's a reference to when Israel won a great battle over a people called Midian. A fearful guy named Gideon was leading them. Gideon rallied the troops and God said, that's too many. So God had Gideon say, whoever is afraid can go home. And 22,000 people left. <laughs> that would have been me, I'm sure. I'm out of here. I'm out of here. 22,000 troops left. 10,000 stayed. God said, that's still way too many, Gideon. He had them do this kind of uh, thing where they were drinking water. And if you drank water a certain way, then he had them stay. 
And the point was not, what's your water drinking technique? The point was, God saying, he did not want his people boasting over him. Saying, my own hand has saved me. He wanted it to be clear, the victory over Midian was his doing alone. So with a mere 300 troops, they won this great victory. That's the reference. This deliverance, this coming rescue, this coming exodus through Jesus, it's all of him, nothing of you. All his doing, nothing you achieve. The Bible calls that grace. Unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor from God. That's how you start reading your experience with this hope. A rescue, a deliverance of pure grace. Then verse 5 gives us another reason. For, it begins, for... Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumults and every garment rolled in blood will be burned, burned as fuel for the fire. That seems strange. What's that talking about? Well, the boots of the warriors, the garments rolled in blood, all that's talking about victory in a battle. Victory in a battle. The victors in the battle would set on fire all the equipment and clothing of the defeated army. They didn't want to keep it. They burned it. That's the picture. Victors in a battle, setting on fire the defeated army's stuff. It's a picture of entering into the spoils of victory. But we were just told it's a victory that we don't win. God does. God wins the victory, but we get the benefits. That's the idea. God wins the victory. And he says, enter into the spoils of my victory. Think about it. What we call the gospel, the good news, is just like this. It's a victory outside of you. A victory, you might say, despite you. But you get all the benefits as you trust in Christ. You get the victor's spoils as you believe. You get forgiveness of all of your sins, past, present, and future. You get What's called justification. You are declared righteous with the righteousness of Christ. You get sanctification. You are made more like Jesus. You are transformed. And then one day, you get glorification. You are changed entirely. And in the meantime, you experience adoption. You are made God's beloved child. You are lavished with benefits from a victory that's not yours. You read your experience with that hope. And then the ultimate reason, verse 6, for to us the child is born. Here's Christmas. Turn the page, isn't it? To us, child is born. That means human descent, it means human parentage. But a whole lot more here. A child is born, to us a son is given, and notice, the government shall be upon his shoulder. That's saying, this child will reign, he will rule as king. All dominion, all authority on his shoulders alone. That's pretty hope-giving for our day, isn't it? But what will his rule be like? The verse continues, and his name, his, his character... What he's like. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's unpack those one at a time. A wonderful counselor, and this word wonderful can be sometimes is translated supernatural. You might think of it that way. Supernatural counselor. The contrast being with that guy, King Ahaz, I mentioned, whose foolishness ruined his people. But one comes with wisdom that is supernatural. Wisdom beyond any human wisdom. Could that give you hope right now? You need that in your life? He is mighty God. This word is also, this word mighty is also translated champion sometimes. Like with Goliath in the Old Testament. This champion. This hero. This warrior. And yet, a divine warrior. Mighty God. I, I went for a bike ride this summer on vacation. And I passed a house with a sign that said, I don't have my phone, my daughter has my phone. The sign said, Jesus is God's selfie. You know, it sounds kind of crass or funny, but imagine, you know, God taking a selfie. <laughs> you might say, Jesus Christ is that selfie. There's something to that. Hebrews chapter 1 says, he's the radiance of the glory of God. The outstreaming of God's majesty. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, we recited the Nicene Creed. A divine warrior who comes with the might and power of God himself. Did that give you any hope? Right now? Maybe? He is third, everlasting Father. You might ask, how can a child be everlasting Father? Well, the reference here is especially to how a loving father relates to his children. It's a perfect love, a tender, compassionate love that never ends. Everlasting father. That kind of love for you forever. A love that never runs out. A love you can never wear out. Does that give you any hope? Lastly, Prince of Peace. This is a word you might probably know, you've heard the Hebrew word shalom. It's the word for peace. It means wholeness. It means health. It means total well-being. Everything how it's supposed to be. Just what we need when our lives seem so bleak. Wholeness in our marriages or our parenting or our relationships. Well-being in our health or our job or our uncertainties of life. And notice verse 7, happily, of the increase of his government and of peace. Of the increase of his government and of this peace, there will be no end. So his reign increases and increases until one day it's peace without end. Perfect peace one day. Not yet today in our experience, but one day. Everything back to how it's supposed to be. Justice and righteousness forevermore, it says in verse 7. Exactly what a bleak world needs and what this Prince of Peace brings. This is why, friends, this is why people are rejoicing. I get a great harvest or a great victory in verse 3. Because Jesus Christ frees us from slavery by His grace alone. 
in verse 4. And he brings us into the spoils of his victory in verse 5. And all because of who he is in verse 6. Wonderful, supernatural counselor, mighty God, who loves you with a tender, compassionate love and brings real peace. But you should ask, Tab, how in the world does this child accomplish all this? It's a good question. Isaiah is going to tell us in this book. He talks about a servant of the Lord. And in chapter 53, listen to what he says in verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. Just keep in mind all we just saw in chapter 9 and read it forward into chapter 53 and be amazed. He was pierced for our transgressions, our sins. He was, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. Did you hear that? Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. A child born to be king comes to stand in our place before God as our substitute, to stand in our place to receive the judgment we deserve, to stand in our place to endure the wrath we have earned. He did this hanging on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago when they put him in a tomb, and three days later he rose from the dead. It's the ultimate good catastrophe, isn't it? The one crucified, rose triumphant, reigns right now, and is returning when peace, righteousness, and justice are our experience forevermore. So I want to close asking you again what feels bleak for you? What feels bleak right now? Your job, your finances, your health, your relationships, your schooling, your uncertain future. Maybe just in your own soul. 140 years ago, an Anglican bishop named J.C. Ryle, he wrote that heart trouble, heart trouble is the most common thing in the world, he said. And he wasn't talking about needing bypass surgery. He wasn't talking about heart disease. He meant the heart trouble of worry, the heart trouble of fear, the heart trouble of panic, anxiety, loneliness. Really? Kids, you, you might know what I'm talking about here. There is, in the Star Wars saga, a scene with Luke Skywalker, tell me if you remember, where Yoda sends Luke into a cave, and that cave is strong in the dark side of the Force. And what's in that cave are basically Luke's greatest fears. And so he faces Darth Vader in this cave. Maybe you're living way, that way right now, in kind of a cave of your own fears. And I believe God wants to meet you. Joy is held out to you. 
real joy, a, a lasting joy that circumstances can't touch. If you read your experience this way, through the lens of Christmas hope, remember that? Decide what reading of your experience you're going to live by. Read your experience through the lens of this Christmas hope. You can turn again and again to this passage to keep you going. So you don't give up. When you feel stuck in your life, read your experience with this hope. See his deliverance. He delivers you from the rod of the oppressor. He died to free you from all that you cannot free yourself. When you feel like you haven't done enough, you've got to do more. Read your experience different, differently. The battle is won by him alone, like on the day of Midian we saw. All on him, nothing on you. Live your life by his grace alone. And when you think this good news has nothing to do with you, though you have trusted Christ, read your experience with this hope. He has brought you into the spoils of his victory. He has held nothing back. The power of his death and resurrection are at work in you who believe. And when you think, as we all can sometimes, how can all this be true? Read your experience in light of who this is. His name. His character. His wonderful counsel. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. He is everything you need in a bleak world. You see, friends, the hymn was right. The hopes and fears of all the years, including this year, are met in Him tonight and was born at Christmas. It is the triumph of hope over experience. Let's pray together and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper and we'll sing this way. Could you join me in a moment of prayer, please? And I want to just give you a moment to, to respond in your own heart. And we covered a lot. Where is this landing on you right now? Where do you need to believe these realities right now? Might be tab, I, I need to trust this for the first time, really. And do so right now. I, I urge you. Just turn to him So I have nothing but I hear of your grace. I want to enjoy the spoils of your victory. I want to know you, King of Kings, who died for you. You can turn from going your own way. Tell him that you need him. Trust in his cross and resurrection. To bring you to God. Others, maybe you're in that cave of fears. You're experiencing acute heart trouble. You're downcast by the bleakness around you. 
Read your experience right now by this hope. The reversal to come. The reversal to come. Rooted in sure, amazing reasons. Son and Holy Spirit, thank you for showing us Christmas through the eyes of a guy who lived seven centuries earlier. Help us now to live in light of this hope and to know the joy described. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.